Today on IFS Talks, we're so happy to be welcoming back Chris Burris. He's speaking with us today about IFS and emotional regulation. Chris Burris is an IFS senior lead trainer for the IFS Institute. He's been an IFS therapist since 1999 and is trained as a marriage and family therapist. Chris uses mind-body approaches of therapy in alleviating traumatic stress, depression, and anxiety disorders. Chris is currently in private practice in Asheville, North Carolina. Chris, welcome to IFS Talks, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be with you again. Welcome back, Chris. It's our take three for this podcast. Thanks again for your great collaboration and generosity with the talks. It's been almost one year since we sat and discussed four types of challenging protectors. How have you been those days? Anything you'd like to share? Good, good. Yeah, I think most of my training uh, endeavors has been um, a lot with uh, Black Therapist Rock, working on getting people of color trained so there's more access for uh, people of color and people that find themselves in um, sort of marginalized populations have access um, to their therapists that have some more cultural or identities. Um, so there's been a lot of my work the past uh, the past year and getting some new lead trainers trained and um, and uh, from those communities and very very happy to probably have some new lead new lead trainers coming up and uh, so that's been a lot of my work the past years uh, with uh, those populations. Chris, emotional regulation or emotional self-regulation is one common main goal for so many in therapy and for so many therapy modalities. Is it also a main goal for IFS? Do we want our clients emotionally self-regulated? Yeah, I think I think it's really important. I think it is a, you know, when people come looking for help with depression or anxiety, um, emotionally they're overloaded and overwhelmed um, and are looking for help with that. So I think it's a major part of therapy, the therapy process. And I think IFS adds some really great um, contributions and tools that are um, user-friendly and helpful for people. Please, regulation is not a word that you find easily in the IFS vocabulary or in Richard Schwartz's writings. In his Dick's 28 book, You Are the One You Have Been Waiting For, you can find many expressions for emotion, like emotion connection, emotional intelligence, emotional burdens, but never emotional regulation. Also, in its amazing 2013 article, called Moving from Acceptance Towards Transformation with IFS, Dick says, and I'm quoting, an exiles carry the effect that clients try to regulate through strategies mentioned above like thought suppression, experiential avoidance, and emotional non-acceptance. It is the protector's part that use those strategies and others to control the person's inner environment, internally keeping the person away from the exiles and to control the person's external words so that the exiles are never triggered by people or events. So, for Dick, regulation comes from protectors 
trying to control and suppress exiles. Thus, the term regulation got a bad press, once too much linked to the idea of suppression and control. I think there's so much in our culture, even kind of the way we're raised. I just recently heard of um, an information about how we're raised uh, from a, a behavioral standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so much of um, the way we're raised from a behavioral standpoint is that things are allowed and not allowed and things that are not allowed get suppressed. Mm -hmm. And so in what we encounter in the first, in the beginnings of IFS is so much of our system is repressed. And so those other therapeutic tools that you just named, the Dick names, do add more suppression. Um, and I think Dick's very much trying to stay away from anything that suppresses uh, other parts uh, or parts suppressing parts or things not being allowed to emerge and be present in the system. Mm -hmm. So I think he's um, done a wonderful job really trying to steer away from therapeutic approaches that contribute to more repression. Chris, what's your own interest in emotional regulation and IFS? Where does it stem from? Yeah, I think, um, you know, emotional regulation has been sort of a big part of my own journey around, you know, growing up kind of a white male and our society, um, having access to emotions and names for feeling words um, and being able to say what I'm feeling is, um, is always been quite a challenge. And, um, and so having emotional vocabulary uh, to be able to describe what I'm feeling. It's also really important in, in intimate connections with others to be able to say how we're feeling. Um, and so my own journey has been kind of learning my feelings, being able to have words for my feelings, express those in moments of conflict. Um, so those that's been a very important part of my own journey and my own part of uh, being in, um, you know, intimate relationships with others, being able to name what I'm feeling other than, you know, angry or pissed off or, you know, or, you know, done, you know, or finished, you know. So I need a bigger vocabulary to be able to describe. And I'm, you know, we all are feeling beings, you know, so it's, so, you know, not having a language for it has, has been a major challenge. It's not something men tend to sit around and talk about their feelings with one another very much. So, um, so that's been part of my journey is to be able to name what I'm feeling um, clearly. And, and it helps with being able to um, regulate my system in, in a non-repressive or suppressive way, but a way of inquiry. When people learn IFS and try to practice IFS, um, what they tend to do, so if I have if I have an emotion come up or have something that's uh, uh, activating in my system, and I, and the first thing I say to myself is, is that a part, or do I have a part? That that can engage a mental figuring it out dynamic, you know, and where I go into figuring trying to figure it out. When you the IFS process really isn't a figuring it out process. It's an inquiry process. I like to call, I call it where we began with curiosity and then we, we, we are informed by our parts, by our system. So the, so being able to enter into a, a, a curious um, beginning 
to kind of be informed by our system. And I think the reason Dick does a lot around not doing grounding and not doing these other regulatory processes is because it blocks the, the process of being informed and having our system be able to inform uh, inform us about what's occurring internally. Um, mm-hmm. So the success of the model is sort of find the part, focus on it, and then began to flesh it out, which means noticing it, paying attention mm-hmm. to it, then to notice how we feel towards it. So that inquiry process is a process of having our system inform us about what's occurring internally. How do we notice the difference for ourselves or, you know, at, when we're with our clients and we have our parts detectors up, how do we tell the difference between figuring it out parts and inquiry? Well, I think it's a, it's a level of curiosity. Um, and so I think there's kind of two ways the parts reveal themselves. One is to be able to talk out loud. And in talking out loud in our stories, often we can hear what parts are active. So a therapist listening to the stories of their client isn't analyzing, they're listening with curiosity for more of a hypothesis about what might be active. Not that we know exactly what it is, it's just a little indicator that there's there's something active in the system. There's a push, there's a pull, you know, there's a conflict, internal conflict between parts. So we get these, but the parts detecting isn't a figured out process. It's like a little indicator that says, hey, if we focus here, we might find out more. And so it's a beginning process rather than a knowing process. Coming back to your need of getting to know your emotions, different parts carry different energies and different emotions, right? Yeah. And it looks so important for therapists to notice and name those different energies and emotions coming from such different parts. So, as practitioners and therapists, what do we need to tune up an emotional detector or radar? Do we need emotion knowledge or an emotional wisdom? I think we need to have vocabulary. We need to have a language, not only sort of a language of feelings, but a language of mood. Mm-hmm. And we also had need to have a language that describes sensation um, and a language for needs. Um, and so how well we're versed in the language of emotions, moods, needs, and sensations so that we, we can reflect back something in the ballpark that may may resemble a little bit of what the client is feeling so that it gives them a little indicator and a little support so that they have so they can go inside to explore more around that you know so for example anxiety is a mood Mm -hmm. that has the emotion of fear and also has a, a quite a bit of thoughts connected to it you know a story about what might happen you know, or, um, you know, a story about what someone may do or may not do, you know, so the story plus the fear, the combination of that creates that mood of anxiety. Um, so being able to, to have that vocabulary is really, really important. So we can be in, begin to reflect back 
a little bit of where to start with the inquiry process. It sounds like it would that would come out of really spending time getting to know each part or a particular part where you really take the time to see all the different facets of it. Yeah. Or feel or sense or describe. Yeah, I think that knowing our own system is really important. When I was studying, you know, I studied a lot of Rogerian psychotherapists and what they would have us do in the early days is we'd watch soap operas, you know, and, and, and sort of name, try to name, get a sense of naming the feelings, you know, so I would sort of sit with soap operas with my big feeling sheet, you know, trying to kind of name the feeling that was going on. But oftentimes it's like five or six different feelings all occurring all at once, you know, so you're kind of, so any given scenario, you may have multiple feelings going on all at once that you're, you know, and so, so I think it's impossible to name exactly what people are feeling, but we can get a little hint about it, you know, and some feeling words that began to, to give language to it. Uh, if we don't, if we can't name it, then it becomes very um, unidentified and, and, and it creates a lot of uncertainty, you know, and so uncertainty is another big thing that people tend to feel anxious about is a fear of the unknown or feeling uncertainty of not being able to name what I'm feeling then creates anxiety on top of that, that feeling that's occurring. Chris, I've been checking on Dick's writings and I could see that the term self-regulation only appears in Dick's 2021 last book, No Bad Parts, and just to introduce an old concept from cybernetics. And the term effect regulation finally appears on the 2020 Internal Family Systems 32nd edition when Dick and Martha say, because any part can control the level at which it blends with the self, we are able to work with very delicate inner systems largely without having to use the grounding techniques and the effect regulation skills that are prevalent feature of most trauma therapists. So, Dick and Marta are saying that exiles can regulate themselves under certain circumstances yeah. without the oppressive work of manager or the destructive work of firefighters. Do you want to comment on this? Yeah, I think that's a, a big uh, hallmark of what Dick is trying to be been communicating for quite some time is so regulation really comes into play when parts are listened to and heard. So that so coming into relationship to the part and being able to listen to it and have it feel heard and not alone, the part naturally begins to can naturally begin to regulate. So, you know, so if it doesn't feel like anyone's there, if it's stuck in a trauma scenario, if it doesn't think anyone's coming and there's no one, no way to get listened to, then obviously the part's going to get loud in some way. It could get loud somatically or even by, through its voice or emotion. So coming into relationship to the part, you know, that that's the, the process of regulating is coming into relationship to the part. Once we enter into a relationship to the part, then we can reassure it that we're here to not here to get rid of it or, you know, that we're here to help it or that we can listen to it. And then we can ask it to 
to engage in a way that is um, supportive or easier for the person to, to be in relationship to it. So that's a natural process of parts regulating is through coming into relationship to them. Sometimes we do that with direct access by the, the, the therapist himself coming into relationship to the part, or we help the client self come into um, relationship to it. So if we don't, if we do sort of lots of other grounding and other sort of techniques, we, what Dick is saying is we block that process of coming into regulate, coming into relationship to the part. And then we enact a form of repression all over again. Still, we need to say that our clients have permission to dysregulate or be dysregulated in our consulting rooms, right? Well, and I think this is where the concept of blending and unblending gets confusing for folks. Um, so oftentimes people prescribe unblending as a form of regulation, that a client is blended and I need to help them unblend so they will regulate. You know, and that actually sort of becomes another form of repression. A client being blended isn't problematic. Right? I say blending is a really up close mm -hmm. and personal communication that you're getting with a client. So I don't start my, and I think a lot of therapists take away when they take the level one training, because we do start with a meditation, that they need to start a meditation at the beginning of their session to have a client be in session. But what, what happens is you, you take that live material and you kind of repress it in a way, you know, and we want that live material. We want the, the anxiety, we want some anxiety to be present to work with it. You know, so there are times that it may be beneficial to, you know, to do a little meditation or do a little, you know, inquiry or settling mm -hmm. that can then be helpful, but we don't want to lose that live material. So blending is a very helpful process to inquiry. Um, and we don't have to unblend in order to start an inquiry process. We actually ask them to blend to start the inquiry process. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Yeah, I really appreciate that take. Uh, it, it's really, it's really important to really experience the, the part as it is in the moment. Yeah. That's the way to get the best. Yeah, I think the thing therapist has to ask is, I, am I trying to unblend this client because them being blended is uncomfortable for me? you know, to my parts, you know, so oftentimes when we try to trace it back, I need you to unblend so I can settle, you know, and that's, that's not, we want to be able to settle as therapists. We want to be able to, to be in our self energy and be with the person while they're blended. Please, what would you say that uh, IFS really can add to the concept and the depth of emotional regulation? Well, I think the, the inquiry, so I can sort of give you an example. A couple of days ago, I, I um, had an event that was just kind of disturbing to my system. And when I, all I could really identify in the beginning was I felt vulnerable. I felt uncertain, you know, and um, I felt a little bit of alone. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I could identify those those feelings. And then the next thing I could identify is how was I feeling towards my feelings? You know, so I had a critic that was saying, you shouldn't be bothered so much about this. This shouldn't bother you so much. You know, so that was repressing, trying to repress those feelings. So as I sort of came into relationship more with it and, the, and I began to listen to the parts that were having those feelings 
then the system opened up and I could I could I could identify the feelings even more, the complexity of the feelings. I could identify the needs that was also behind those emotions, you know, and then eventually, you know, one morning I woke up and, you know, and the my exiles were present. I'm like, oh, OK, this is why it's so bothersome for you, you know, because my exiles were also involved in in the event. So that that process took probably 24 hours, you know, for but the regulation was there because I was able to be in relationship to the feelings, yes, you know, and listening to them. But it took a while for it to inform me all the complexity about what I was experiencing, you know. And then once I had that experience, then I could communicate it, you know, and the communication of it, you know, brought me closer to the person that I was in conflict with versus disconnecting it. So it wasn't a, it was an inquiry process of being with and listening to, to my system versus a figuring it out, you know, um, process. And I I think that's, that can take a while listening to our feelings, our system, what parts are involved that can, you know, that can take a little while to work itself out. And I think people are quick to, I can't figure it out, which is often means I, I don't have language for it. You know, I think that's where these having language for language for emotion, language for needs, language for sensation, that kind of helps us with that with that process. We don't go into quite the uncertainty or unknowing quite uh, and we don't get overwhelmed quite so much. Thank you for illustrating that with that example. That feels really helpful. Does it seem to you in your experience that emotional regulation or dysregulation when when we're triggered, is that usually indicative of exiles that are holding burdens or tension or pain? I I wrote down kind of, I end up sort of having a list of five, five ways that sort of comes up, you know, and um, so maybe I'll just go through a few of these that one is there is an overwhelming event. You know, so one can be an overwhelming, I'm just faced with, you know, an overwhelming event. It could be just straight up, straight in, the up moment. in the moment. Life is hard. Yeah, life is yeah. hard. There's there's an event that occurs. Yeah. There okay. can be emotions that occur based on a, 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 a life challenge, you know. So a challenging maybe, you know, my car breaks down, it's going to cost me $2,000 to fix it. You know, I've got 500 in my bank account, you know, and, and I don't have next paycheck. You know, so there can be over a life event that's that's challenging life event. Um, the other one can be, as you sort of name, can be unresolved trauma. So these life events, or you know, or uh, life challenges or life events, can evoke over you know past traumas that often surface on top of that. Um, we can also have unresolved grief that begins to surface. Um, and there's different things that may that may bring that up. Sometimes people watch a movie um, or see a TV show or have an interaction with someone or an anniversary and grief begins to emerge kind of on its own. Um, the other one that I think we don't talk a lot about in IFS is the emergence of needs. So when we have needs that are unmet, we naturally have an emotional re- reaction to that. Um, so that that need 
when the unmet need isn't met, we, we have an emotion or distress that tells us that that need is not being, not being met or that that need is there and is not being listened to, you know, so I can get quite antsy, you know, if I don't play tennis, you know, at least a couple of days a week, my, my system gets very antsy and irritable. And that tells me I'm not having enough fun, you know, so that, that emotion tells me there's an unmet need. Um, the, the last one, which we don't talk a lot about IFS is sort of what I call soul's desire. Mm, yep. this, this feeling of wanting to make a purpose mm. or having a contribution to the world, oh, beautiful. a movement towards something that breaks our heart that we, that we feel like we need to do something about. So there's kind of a calling and we can have a lot of emotion around the, that sort of the, the connection of our self energy to something that we're supposed to be engaged with. So there's several areas where emotion can come up uh, and we, we need to be able to kind of engage it in order to navigate, you know, through those different, through those different events. With each of these, it's it's really beautiful because it indicates the purposefulness of of the emotion. Right. Yeah. So the so the uh, the purposeness of the emotion, you know, the, so the emotions don't they're not good or bad. They're not right or wrong. They just kind of are, and they they have a they're they're we're meant to to have that part of navigating our the world is through emo, being an emotional being. So we navigate our world through not only emotions, but also thoughts, you know, so our needs help us navigate the world. So we need both of those. If we don't have the cognition, it's hard to navigate, but if we don't have the emotional connectiveness, it's hard to navigate. So we need both of those to navigate our lives. Mm -hmm. Still, Chris, some feelings and emotions like anger and rage have a bad press, and others like peace or love or joy have a better press. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> well, I think that you know, anger. What anger sort of says is, I'm not, I'm not being loved in the way that I want to be loved. Um, you know, so it's so, um, so the the reason it gets a bad press is anger is a poor delivery system for other emotions. You know, so if I feel um, unloved and I communicate that with anger, that doesn't really beget, that other person doesn't love me more often because I'm angry at them, you know, so it doesn't, so it doesn't really beget what we're, it's not a good delivery system for the feelings, you know, but if I'm in touch with my anger, my anger is often telling me I'm not being loved the way that I feel like I deserve to be loved, you know, I'm not being seen the way I want to be seen, or there's an outrage or injustice that's occurring to someone else, you know, and, and that's, that's intolerable. I can't tolerate. So it's about that. I love the other person or I love, you know, I'm loving in a way that is getting blocked um, or a boundary that's getting violated. So it's a very helpful alarm system. This is not a very helpful delivery system. You mentioned the co-regulation with a therapist of like um, walking through a meditation so that, you know, I in the therapist role am, am less uncomfortable. Could you explain why that happens so often and, you know, talk about ways as a therapist to work with that? I think oftentimes somehow 
IFS therapists say to themselves, this client does not have enough self-energy. Um, and as soon as you've said that to yourself as a therapist, you've actually just thrown up a big block to the whole process, you know? And mm-hmm. so somehow, somehow the therapist evaluates the client doesn't have enough self-energy and they say that to themselves. And, the, and then they go about, you know, I'm going to do EMDR. I'm going to do something else other than IFS because this client doesn't have enough therapy or I'm going to do resourcing because they don't have enough self-energy. You know, so we don't, we don't sort of say that we don't, you know, on a cloudy day, we don't say there's not enough sun, you know, there's plenty of sun, you know, the, 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 it's just being blocked, you know, so from an IFS standpoint, and I think Dick communicates this really well, people have plenty of self-energy. They just have really strong protectors that are blocking that self-energy and they don't mean to block it. They're just in a survival mode, you know, they're trying to survive. And so it's a process of where self-energy emerges by parts relaxing, you know, so I I may be getting off a little bit, but I think that's one reason people do the meditation. If someone comes in blended, they say to themselves, you you don't have enough self-energy for me to be, to work with you. I've got to either, import something by grounding, you know, and importing it, or we got to do a meditation to kind of get yourself energy present rather than that the person's blended. That's a perfect place to start working, Yes, you know, and it may be that we work through direct, direct access by listening very closely and reflecting back what we're hearing from. So we're holding self energy or we're beginning to enter into the process of how they're relating to what they're experiencing. Um, so that's why I say blending blending is a great opportunity. It's an up close and personal experience with a part at that very moment. So all parts are welcome. It can be tough on therapists as well. Yeah, it can be tough on some of our parts. What I've been working a lot, I've been doing a lot of consultation is, is really how many therapist parts are actually engaged in the process of trying to provide therapy. So a lot of our young parts that learn to care for people, you know, significant others are often in the room engaged, you know, and get overwhelmed by it, you know, so really having, and I think this is something Dick talks a lot about is not having, not having your therapist, your parts, even kind of in the room, definitely not engaged in therapy process um, is one of the growing, um, you know, um, developmental processes for IFS therapists is to, you know, the question I sort of asked, when I do a lot of journaling is, is who has prescribed himself to this client or prescribed himself to this event? You know, so the inquiry inside is which parts of me have prescribed themselves to this event or this person, you know, so they, they taken it on themselves to, this is my job. And they've often done that involuntarily. It's not, it's, it's an unconscious process. So, Chris, it looks like through IFS lens, there is a variety of quite different ways of regulation. One through managers that either control or suppress exiles and firefighters, traditional seen as control and regulation by other models. Another through firefighters and those can still be seen by traditional models as dysregulation. Another one through the exile itself, when these 
exiles feels the trust enough and enough connection that enables the modulation of the emotion. And another one through differentiation, so precious in our model, when self is present to the parts and differentiate itself from the part. Would you agree with these different qualities of regulation, Chris? Well, I think that I would prescribe it more in uh, suppression, you know, and um, being in relation to, you know. So I think the word regulation has become synonymous with repression. And, and I think that's been a lot of um, what Dick's, um, you know, hesitancy about even using the word itself because it evokes actually, and, and helping people see that that is a repressive endeavor is has been quite a challenge um, because we, so much of our system relies on that and teaches people, you know, to ground or to meditate it away. Um, you know, but I think those are putting band-aids on it, you know, and we don't we don't get to exiles by grounding or meditating it away. And I think that's been Dick's um, campaign is to is for people to be comfortable getting to those vulnerable parts of themselves. So, Chris, does self-regulate? We have the expression self-regulation, meaning we should regulate ourselves. But the self-regulates as well, or the self-leads? I think I think self-connects and um, comes into relationship with um, and accepts um, the parts. So, in in that process of connection. And there's, and we get that we, you know, if I'm really, really upset and I can connect with another person that would just listen to me, you know, or sit with me, then my system will naturally, you know, become calmer. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that, but that's a process. So that, and that's, in that sense, the self of the other person is helping my system regulate um, in regulation, meaning I use the word meaning sort of coming to a natural state. You know, that there's a natural, our system naturally wants to, you know, come into a harmonious, more harmonious state. So there's a natural motivation to that. We don't have to make that happen or do do that to somebody. It, the system naturally wants to do that, you know, um, but it does that through being seen and heard and valued. And that either, that can happen either with someone else or can happen in how we see here and value our own system so that question how am i feeling towards my part right now is a real key to the process of the system beginning to come to a natural state of regulation can you say a little bit about the role of shame around regulation you know i think i think shame is uh i think shame feels life-threatening um because it it what goes with shame is this feeling that I'm discardable um, or I'm irrelevant or um, I don't belong. And, and those evokes really a life-threatening, you know, response. 
uh, a lot of anxiety can be the about the feeling of shame emerging in our system or something occurring that's going to evoke shame in our system. Um, so it's it's quite overwhelming. It also tends to cause us to isolate from other people. So that so that feeling of loneliness or being alone in addition to that I'm unlovable or un, you know or rejectable, um, you know, it's a, a majorly distressing, you know, to to our system. Um, shame is often a component of trauma. So trauma has two components, not only the bad thing that happened, but also the feeling of being alone, as well as that somehow I deserve this, um, or somehow it's my fault I'm causing this. Um, so in our own critics, I do a lot of work with critics, um, run a critic camp for uh, people that graduate from level one's trainings. Um, but a lot of our own critics evoke that shame or keep it stoked, um, you know, or closely, you know, uh, active, alive in our system. Um, so, you know, I think it's one of the most difficult emotions and feelings to, to navigate. Um, it also is the thing that's sort of bonded to our exiles and their, and their trauma and the burdens they carry. Chris, I guess contracting and negotiate workable goals with IFS is one of your specialities. Yeah. And usually managers push clients into therapy for regulation or controlling or eliminate other parts, dysregulated ones, usually firefighters or even exiles. Mm -hmm. How do we manage contracting with those managers? Well, the, the thing I teach a lot is when People come into therapy. I'm curious how how are they relating to their system, you know? So how what is their way of relating to themselves? And largely, what we have is people relating in repressive ways, you know. So I don't like this part. I want to get rid of this part. I want this to go away. I want to get rid of my anxiety. You know, I want to get rid of my anger. Those are ways people are relating to themselves. And what we see, you know, what we resist persists. So that beginning, the beginning contract is, would you allow me to help you learn to relate differently to your feelings and emotions? You know, can we, what if we related in a way that we could listen to them and hear more about what they're trying to say or what they're, what they're trying to communicate with you or what the needs are? How about if I could help you listen to your, your emotions or feelings in a way that helps them feel more understood, helps your system feel more understood? So that's a workable contract, which is basically the inquiry process, you know, find, focus, feel towards and be friends. So that relating in a, um, a bit of a compassionate or curious way is the befriending process that we're kind of helping people enter into. So relating how they, how people are relating to themselves isn't one initially people come in knowing about that part of my anxiety is also how I'm relating to my fear. You know, if I'm relating to my fear in repressive ways, then I'm buzzing with anxiety because I'm repressing my fear. Chris, you've shared so much of your wisdom about emotional regulation. Are there one or two points that you'd really like to get across clearly for listeners to take away from, from this podcast and, and from all that you've learned? Well, I, th I think... 
what I'd like for people to come away with is um, the inquiry process can take quite a bit of sitting with ourselves. Okay. And with amount of distractions, and I'm guilty of playing on Facebook and video games and now my own distractions, we don't we don't really have the patience to sit with ourselves for a while. You know, I have I've sat with meditation for uh, a week before before I really, really could hear what the anxiety was underneath it. So I'd like for people, I'd like to encourage people to have patience with themselves, to listen with the parts, you know, and to ask themselves, how am I feeling towards it? And we, not just something we have to do alone, you know, that we can do with other people, you know, as well, you know, being with and sitting with other people and trading that kind of space. So to normalize the, I figure if it takes me 24 hours to kind of come to some understanding with listening to my system, that that's, and that's what a lot of IFS practice, you know, and a, a lot of IFS therapy, you know, that's kind of a normal process is to be with and listen to. And sometimes with parts that are really, really hurting, you know, all I could do is kind of say, yeah, I'm here, I'm here, I'm with you. You're not by yourself. You know, I'm here with you, you know, and, and in that sense, there's a little bit of comfort that comes, you know, there's a little reprieve that comes or a little breath that can breathe. People can breathe a little easier, you know, so if we rush in to try to fix or figure it out, it just makes the system more um, stagnant or compounded or locked up in a way. So I mainly just encourage people to have time to listen, you know, to themselves and to, you know, to, to trade that for each other, to be able to listen to each other and let your system and kind of inform you. Um, one of the things I teach a lot is mapping so that we, we can sort of create representations of what we're noticing inside. Um, and then that it's not so much a figuring it out process, but being a process of being revealed. Beautiful. Also, it helps me. I have different maps, you know, the, um, the needs inventory that nonviolent communication has is an excellent tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also teach, um, you know, that sort of the beginning inquiry around uh, emotions. I think um, Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart, yeah. So lovely, yes. On the research on emotions, wonderful HBO series. Um, she just described despair, uh, is it despair, agony, uh, in a way that like totally makes sense to me. I'm like, okay, I've been there before. Like I didn't have a word for that, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. so I think those are really, really wonderful resources. Uh, a lot of what she talks about in terms of needing language, um, you know, in her research on that, I think so those are really great resources. Uh, for for folks and um, you know and to turn towards people emo- with emotions, um, you know, um, is you know really important things to keep in mind as we're working with our system. Um, and we we can't we can't heal ourselves. You know, we can definitely get a lot of insight and and kind of comfort ourselves, but we, we do need support in the healing process. Yeah, beautiful. Chris, thank you, thank you so much again for this amazing time together. Great. I'm going now to take some time for myself and maybe dysregulate for a while. <laughs> Good. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, sometimes um, I get on my motorcycle to just regulate for a little while. You know, feels kind of feels feels kind of good. My firefighters like it. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha, and Thanks. it's our hope that we can keep meeting and sharing this model, your work, our work, and our lives. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for being here.